Good morning. Today we begin what I think is a much anticipated series in Genesis. We'll begin in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. That will be on page 1 of your house Bible. If you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who needs one, please take that with you today. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we are about to do a very spiritual thing as to give our time and attention to your word. I pray that a very spiritual thing happens right now that we would hear from you. Father, as we open your word, as we have heard it, read, and prayed, and sung this morning, now as it is preached, help us hear you, know you as you are, know us as we are, truly. We pray that the burdens of our souls would be left with you today. In all the ways we need conviction of sin, convict us. In all the ways we need encouragement and faith, encourage us, God. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my main hopes for you today is pastoral. I have felt many burdens this year, as I know many of you have in so many different ways, and I just continue to be burdened and burdened and burdened and continue to go back to God's Word and feel my burden left there. I just hope and pray today that as we put our eyes on God and His Word, all of your burdens are left with the Lord, whatever they may be. I think that our collective imagination betrays humanity's rejection of God. Humanity's imagination betrays humanity's rejection of God. Let me work that out for a moment. We are living in what is known as a post-enlightenment time. One fruit of the enlightenment in the West is that for the first time in 2021, the Washington Post reported that membership at a local church, synagogue, or a mosque, any of those three, was for the first time in history below 50%, having gone down about 25% in less than 100 years. This is the fruit of what we call the Enlightenment in part. Scripture over time through the Enlightenment era began to be viewed as another book, while reason and science became the way that we began to know truth. We no longer believe knowledge comes primarily by spiritual means or by revelation from God. Thus, in 1882, in some ways capping off the Enlightenment, 
Friedrich Nietzsche confidently exclaimed, God is dead. We killed him. The Enlightenment got rid of him. What happened in the Enlightenment? What is our current historical moment? David Willem sums it up like this in his systematic theology. He says, before the Enlightenment, people found it impossible not to believe in the existence of God. Going back to the 1500s before, generally in the world, people found it impossible not to believe in the existence of God. However, starting with the Enlightenment, it became possible not to believe in the existence of God. And now, 300 years later, due to the rise of postmodern pluralism, most people find it impossible to believe in the significance and the existence of God. Historically, that means we as a society, speaking very generally, we are beyond demanding that the church gives reasonable or scientific or apologetic arguments for God. Most of society has moved on beyond that discussion, no longer understanding the world through enlightenment disciplines, science, reason, logic. Science used to tell us everything we need to know in order to understand the world and the meaning of our world, so it was said. But today, science cannot even tell us if you are a boy or a girl. So has mankind simply written off everything that has to do with God? Have we just decided then as a society that there is no such thing as God, there's no spiritual world, everything is naturalism, everything is only material? Is that where we have landed on this side of the Enlightenment, on this side of our moment in history? And that's where I would say our imagination betrays us. What is our post-enlightenment imagination? What is the imagination of humanity on this side of the cultural shift towards postmodern relativism and naturalistic humanism? What is so fascinating about our current post-enlightenment moment? We have announced in 1882 that God is dead only to then, for the past hundred years, increasingly entertain ourselves with increasingly spiritual and magical fantasies, narratives. I just want you to consider the top grossing movies of the 21st century. Number one and number three are the film's Avatar. Mankind enters into the world of Pandora, having committed what is known as ecocide against the earth. We're looking for a way out. We're looking for a new creation, a new planet. We become, through technology, a hybrid people among the Navi, who have at the center of their world a spiritual, sacred tree of life. Billions of dollars spent watching these films. The number two film in between those two is Avengers Endgame. 
narrative where all power is held by one who has the six stones of power. What are those six stones? The space stone, the mind stone, the time stone, the power stone, the soul stone, and the reality stone. Which is ironic because it's a fictional story. The heroes of the film are going in and out of the quantum realm, traveling through time, And everything is built around this moment called the blip, when Thanos snaps his fingers with all six stones and kills half of all living things in the universe randomly. Number four in the 21st century, Star Wars. I don't think I need to explain. The dark side, the force. Number 12, Frozen 2. Frozen 2. A tale of magical powers over ice and snow. Talking snow giants. Final redemption accomplished by love. Number 13. Barbie. Believe it or not, quite a philosophical conversation about things like life and death. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a woman? Number 17 in the movie list is none other than Harry Potter, which of course is the number one best-selling book in many decades. The story of a boy who discovers a hidden reality about himself. He is a wizard. He is attacked by an unknown creature along with his schoolmates. There's, I had to look this up on Wikipedia. I have not read these books or seen these movies. My children have. There's a mythical chamber of secrets, there are spells, there's madness, death, horror, romance. The book series has sold more than 600 million copies in 85 languages. And it's about a reality which is fought and saved through spells and curses and magic. I think our imagination betrays our rejection of a biblical worldview. We say that we don't believe it, but we want to. We love watching movies about it. Our post-enlightenment situation, our post-enlightenment imagination, really is summed up as the fantastic imagination of alternate dimensions and orders of the universe wherein superior and spiritual narratives of good, evil, and redemption are exalted. That's our modern imagination. We thought we left all that stuff back in the, in the Enlightenment, back in naturalism, back in science. But we just can't help but, but love it. Fantastic imagination of alternate dimensions and orders of the universe wherein superior and spiritual narratives of good, evil, and redemption are exalted. Another dimension is where the real reality happens. And I want to say it's like we're remembering things we never knew. We're imagining memories we didn't even know we had. We're exalting the alternate reality by our pleasure of it. The material world, the human world, is always lesser in these narratives. The exalted, determinative world is that other dimension where there are powers beyond the capacities of humanity. And of course, you can go back and find similar tales in the 1900s as well. 
Star Trek, Dune. Raise your hand if you've read Dune. I'm just curious. I'd love to talk with you after the service is over. I'm interested in this book. I've not read this. When Harry Potter first came out in the 1990s, I mean, it was boycotted. It was boycotted as evil. I want to just encourage you, listen. Listen to the stories that our culture and our society is telling. And why do we love them so much? When his daughter Gamora attempts to kill Thanos in Avengers Endgame, He's seeking the power of the six stones. She kills him in one reality, only to immediately see that dimension fade from her very eyes as Thanos then steps back into her reality from another dimension where he says to her, reality is often disappointing. That is, it was. And then looking at the stones on his hands, he says, now reality can be whatever I want. What a fearful thought. Someone in control of reality. And this is the irony. In the post-enlightenment future, we have begun to imagine ancient spiritual stories. We are entertained by that which we have rejected. Supernatural spells Spiritual powers, we're thirsty for it. I guess naturalism is boring. Well, friends, this is what Genesis is saying to us and to our spiritually entertained culture. You are imagining backwards, not forwards. The imagination of a spiritually enchanted world, a world which is dominated by spells and powers outside what we can see, a universe ordered by supernatural battle between good and evil, which climaxes in redemption through a Messiah dying to redeem his people, a world in which the spiritual and the supernatural are the determinative dimension, we're in it. We're in it. That's it. This is it. You are a part of it. And it's more real and wonderful and majestic and terrible and frightening than you could ever pay a movie producer to put on a screen. And it's your life. It's your life. It's your real breath. It's your real soul. It's your real mind. It's you. You're in, we're in it. This is it. I'm not saying Avengers Endgame is a historical document. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the spiritual thirst that we have, we're really in it. Our imagination betrays us. Genesis introduces us to our spiritual world. Genesis introduces us to our spiritual world. Our reality is more spiritual, more mystical, and more interdimensional than we can imagine. In the first three chapters of the Bible, we have the origin story of the universe, a creation of a priest king who represents God, that's Adam, 
There's a talking spiritual evil serpent who draws away God's representative, which leads to curses after he eats, rejects the tree of life, and eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every consequence, every circumstance stems from the spiritual events of man's relationship to God in the first three chapters of Genesis. Genesis is not merely giving us a historical record of the creation of the natural world. Let me say that again. Genesis is not merely giving us historical record of the creation of the natural world. It is showing that our material world is inextricably and in a complex way spiritual. That our world is not even singular dimensional. Our world is God-enchanted. It is deeply spiritual. And it is now a world that is under a global curse. Did you know that one of the Bible's answers for why things are the way they are is that we are all under a curse? A curse. Rosen didn't make that up. It's happened before. We're in it. Our existence is spiritual. There are battles between good and evil in our own, in the spiritual realm that we cannot see with our eyes. We are part of that reality. We too are material and spiritual, hybrid in avatar terms. It's not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's our lives. And Genesis is our origin story. Genesis is our origin. Every good fantasy series at some point in the series will give you an origin story. Genesis is our origin story. Where did this all begin? How did we get here? What are we? Why are we here? And this is where the Bible begins. And I'll just encourage you to consider why we would even listen to the Bible to begin with. I'm going to give you the very short version today. The Bible claims that it is God's word. Over and over, and from Moses to David to the prophets to the apostles, the authors of the New Testament on page after page are saying, we have been carried along by the Holy Spirit of God to speak God's word to the world. So if you want to look at the Bible and say, yeah, you've got, you've got the you know, Hindu Vedas over here, you've got the, the Buddhist uh, laws, the Eightfold Path, and then you've got the Bible, and they're all basically the same document saying the same thing. You cannot say that, because the Bible is not saying that. The Bible is saying what has been written down in these pages was written by men, but is inspired by God. So maybe you don't agree with that, but you at least have to wrestle with the fact that that's what it's claiming, that these men spoke by God. And here is the first message in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It is that God, our reality, our origin story begins with God who is outside of everything. This is the foundation of our mystical, wonderful, tragic, cursed reality. That at the very beginning, 
we learn God is the creator who is distinct from his creation. We learn that there are two categories of existence. There are two categories of existence. One is creator. One category is creator. You want to guess what the second category is? Created. The second category is the creation. There are two categories in existence. One is the creator. The other is created. There is God himself alone who exists in category one. Creator. Everything else but him and his triune self is in the second category. Created. Created. Creation. In Genesis 1 through 1, 1 through 2, we find these three things begin to explain how God is outside of creation. And it explains it this way. God is before time. God created matter, and God ordered the universe. There's three things. God is before time, God created matter, and God ordered the universe. This makes him outside of creation. That's our origin story. A God, the God, who made all things. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So simple, yet endlessly profound. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. A time is a funny thing. What's a decent imagination these days without a little time travel? Whether it's a special power, whether it's technology, often in our narratives, this is something that makes you supernatural or like supernatural. To be able to go back and forth in time. Maybe you pondered it times as if you could time travel. Maybe some of you are believing and thinking that we are on the cusp of time travel. If so, I would also like to talk to you when our service is over. If you could travel back in time, how far back can you go? If you could travel in the future, how far can the future go? It doesn't take very long for us as we think about time to get to some very nonsensical questions for which answers are way over our heads. Impossible to really truly grasp time and eternity, beginning and end. But Genesis, from the very first sentence, is saying that when creation began, God was already there. In the beginning, God It assumes God was there. There was never a time when God was not. God is eternal. He is outside of time. He never breathed his first breath, his first breath. He never opened his eyes for the first time. God was there in the beginning, but he was himself distinct from the beginning because he has no beginning. 
That is what sets God apart from all other claims of divinity, whether it is pantheism, Islam, Buddhism, New Age, Mormonism, or anything else. God distinguishes himself this way in his word over and over again. Psalm chapter 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth God and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. This is the first foundational truth of our origin story and our reality. That behind it, in category one, is a God who is uncreated and lives by himself in category one, creator. And everything else is on the side of created matter. That's the second thing. God created matter. God is before time. God created matter. In the beginning, what's the first thing it tells us God did? He created the heavens and the earth. This is introducing us to the creator-creation distinction in material ways, not only time ways. It's interesting that this word for create in this form, in this verse, is only ever used of God in the Bible. There's a unique way in which God creates the phrase, phrase most commonly attributed to this doctrine of God is in Latin, creatio ex nihilo, created out of nothing. God took nothing and made something. See, children, parents, you get into your house this week, and parents, you want to teach your children a, a lesson about how God made everything. When your children come to you and say, Dad, look, look what I made you, just respond to them and tell them, you didn't make that. No, don't, don't be rude. Don't be sarcastic. I was saying it's, it's, a, it's a moment for a lesson. I understand what you're saying, sweetheart, but who made that? Who made that paper? Well, that came from a tree. Who made that tree? Who made that ink? Who made those plants? God made everything. We fashion and we restructure things and we build things, and, but we can't make something come into existence from nothing, from non existing to existing. That's how God creates. God didn't get a big pile of Play-Doh at the beginning and go, well, let's make something. He made it all, created it out of nothing. This is something which makes God distinct in all existence. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9 through 11 is a vision to the throne of God for the endurance and the encouragement of the church. And when John sees a vision of God on his throne, he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, it's God, eternality, the 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And what are they singing? They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for because you created all things. And by your will, you willed them into existence, and they were created. This is God. We sang, behold our God, behold your God. He has made everything from nothing by his will. He is before time, he has made all things, and he has ordered the universe. I don't want to disappoint you, but Marvel Studios are not the first ones to consider the origins of the universe. Historically, when mankind departs from God in their society, 
we cannot help but create alternative narrative. A common theme among ancient myths is the concept that the gods were all born out of the sea of chaos. Whether it was the 5,000-year-old Egyptian version, the 3,700-year-old Babylonian Enuma Elish version, or the version of the Greek gods, even around the time of Christ. The common myth held that gods who made the world and fashioned the world, they themselves emerged out of a murky, stormy, very deep, very dark, pre-creation ocean. Most often, and even in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, these words are referring to chaos. The deep sometimes translated into chaos, even in the Bible. And the myths go like this. There's, a, there's this blob of chaotic, stormy water, and God's came out of it. It just came out. And some of the gods drank the water. Some of the gods fought with the water and wrestled the water. Some of the gods used the water. Some of the gods had to wrestle with the water and kind of pin it down, conquer it. Osiris, the ancient Egyptian god, said of himself, it is said in their myths, I formed myself out of the primeval matter, speaking to that sea. I formed myself out of the primeval matter. And I made and I formed myself out of the substance which existed in primeval time. My name is Osiris, who is the primeval matter of primeval matter. Moses, in his writing Genesis, would have certainly been informed of this kind of creation motive. It was all over Egyptian life where Moses grew up as a child. Everything comes from pre-creation, primordial waters of chaos, including their creator god, Ra, who made the world that they're living in. And so you're going to see, and students, you go to, have to go to college one day, you might hear some professors in your classrooms tell you, well, see how the Bible is just like all of those other ancient myths. It's borrowing all of those words from those other myths. See all the words in Genesis 1, 1 through 2? Go read the Enuma Elish. It says all the same things. See, this is all fairy tales. Only if you look closely, the most astounding thing about Moses' account of God is not the similarities to ancient Near East concepts of God, but the differences. Look in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, that is, the water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is seen both before the waters, positionally, and over the waters. Sorry, before the waters in time, and over the waters, positionally. He did not come out of the chaos. He created the world, and He's sovereign over the matter that He made. He spoke, and the world comes to be. All through Scripture, God is attested as the God who is sovereign over the waters. And what a poetic justice for God's people to be saved from the Egyptians by God drowning the entire Egyptian army into a sea. 
where they believe their gods come. It's not ironic. It is so important to grasp the significance of Jesus showing up on the scene as the Son of God. In the boat with his disciples as the boat is tossing and turning and storming and waves are crashing and Jesus is asleep as his disciples say, look around, we're all about to die. This water is going to overtake us. And Jesus stands up and he speaks to the waves and says, peace be still. And they're terrified and rightfully so. Who is this man that even the waves obey him? The implication is this man is God in the flesh because he is outside the waters. He is over the waters. He commands the waters. He doesn't come out of the waters. He's never been afraid of a wave. And as the Bible begins to proclaim the narrative of redemption in the end times in Revelation chapter 4, that moment where John sees the throne, what do we see before God but as it were a sea? of glass like crystal, a very calm sea. Not a chaotic sea, but a very calm, controlled sea under God's sovereignty. And it is where the beast rises up later in Revelation to come and attack God's people. And where are God's people standing in the end, in the end of time, when God has made an end of his enemies, when God's wrath has been spent on the beast entirely, God's people are there standing beside the sea of glass before the throne of God with harps of God in their hands, just like Moses and the people of God. And what do they sing in the end when God's wrath is spent and the beast and his followers are thrown into the sea? What do they sing? None other than the song of Moses, it says in Revelation 15. God is sovereign above the waters of chaos and the waters of creation. The Bible is proclaiming in God's witness of himself and his actions in the world that he is God. He did not come out of creation. He did not emerge from chaos. He is before and above the waters of the earth, and he is the one who orders chaos. He is the one who takes the wasteland, the dirt, the water that he had made himself, and he is the one who begins to put it in order. Psalm 93 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, and his hand in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it. And friends, a general application for you today would be to go from imagining fantasy to imagining the truth. Use the engine of imagination. Why not imagine the truth? Why not imagine reality instead of fiction? See the wonderful and great mystery that our world is created by a God who existed before time? Who created all matter? Who is sovereign over the organization and the chaos of the world? When you go back out into this world today from this building, and you feel the sun on your face, just think, this is a God-enchanted world. This is God's world. This is a spiritual world. 
I'm a spiritual being and a spiritual reality. There was a God before all of this existed. There was a God who existed before time. My friends, if you're honest, you're thirsty for a world that matters like that. Tired of being lazy and aimless, wondering what the world is about, what's the meaning of my job, what's the meaning of my marriage. Why are the films so fantastic and so amazing and so crazy? And we constantly feel disappointed with our own reality. Well, end game's over. I've got to go back to work tomorrow. A good grief. We're in it. Consider that your experience is far more fantastic and mystical than you can imagine, than we could, we could dream up. You are living in a God-made world. You are in a world whose meaning is spiritual. You are spiritual. You matter spiritually, not only materially. Your life is not indifferent. Your life comes from the Creator. You are created. You don't just exist. You didn't just wake up here one day. You don't need to just call your parents today and say, thank you for making me. No, God created us. All of this. Recall that David said in the Spirit of the Lord, as the Spirit spoke to him, he wrote in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable things. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Friends, let me encourage you to wake up and realize that we are taking part in a great cosmic rebellion against the Creator. Our epic, our origin begins with God creating the world, making mankind as His formal representative on the earth. We're going to get to this in chapters 2 and 3. As His image in chapter 1. But we, mankind, we've all rebelled. We rebelled. We told God, no, this is our earth. We told God, no, I'll do it my way. I'll do, I'll do what I want to do. I mean, just think about it. Is your life, would you define your life on your own as having lived for Him, listened to God, acknowledged Him, thanked Him for creation, worshipped Him, thought about what is good and what is evil in terms of what God says is good and what God says is evil, what is evil and what is good because of who God is, Probably the most rebellious thing that we can do against God is think of ourselves as self-existing and forget Him. The creation, forget the Creator. God is the only necessary being and the rest of us are dependent upon Him. The real epic of our reality is that instead of entirely crushing the rebellion, Instead of entirely crushing the rebellion, which God in First Genesis 1-11 through 11 is going to show, He is more than capable of doing. Instead, God offers love and pardon to His creation. I mean, that's our story. That's the epic. That's the reality that we're a part of, the that God, though He's Creator and His creation has turned from Him, rebelled against Him, we've all sinned against Him. The Creator 
sent his own son, his eternal son, into creation to redeem it by dying on the cross to pay for their sins. That's me. That's you. That's the author of God to us. The book of Hebrews tells us that there's a long line of faith of God's people. Beginning with Abel all the way through the apostles to the church today. If you go, if you go back in time, there's David, there's Samuel, there's Moses, there's Joseph, there's Abraham. All the way back to Adam's own son, Abel. They, they all turned from the rebellion... They turned from their rebellion of sin and they trusted God's promises. They trusted God's benevolence and His mercy. This is Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. But what is foundational? What's the first step? What's the origin, if you will, of faith in God? Hebrews 11 chapter 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Faith in anything that God has done, namely His Son, begins with this. Believing. Imagining the truth. And acknowledging that everything is created by God. That He is in the category of Creator. Everything else is in the category of creation. That's the beginning of the redemption message to us in the Messiah. So I just want you to know it's not in vain, church. You believe in God? It's not a fairy tale. I've had people tell me this the last six months. That's a fairy tale for children. No, it's not. It's the reality that we're in. That's our origin story. Church, I just want you to know as all of our sorrows and all of our sin crash over us, wave after wave after wave, all of our trauma and war and fear and anxiety, everything that seems like chaos to us, praise God, He is outside of chaos. Praise God that he is outside the movement of the world, that he is directing the world, that he has a plan, that he is sovereign over it. It's not accident to him. doesn't matter whether you are a president trying to control that chaos or you are a parent trying to control that chaos. We are all in the chaos. Only God is totally outside of it as God. God is before time. He created the world. He orders the universe and its chaos. All the waters of history crash against him like a rock. From the very beginning, the plan was always Jesus. Ephesians 1.11 refers to Jesus as God's plan for the fullness of time. Friends, when you put your faith in Jesus and recognize him as God's son crucified for your sins, you don't just believe a fairy tale. You are tapping into the plan for all time. From the very first moment in the beginning when God created, the plan was always to send Jesus in to come back and get the rebels. Just know that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are walking in God's plan. And friends, if not, if you reject Jesus Christ, what's your origin story? Where do you come from? What matters? What's the meaning of this world? Where's this world going? After wandering through the wasteland, through the desert, similar words to the unformed creation in Genesis 1, Deuteronomy 33 says to God's people to encourage them, to prop them up, to give them faith, the eternal 
God. You're out there in the desert. Here's what you need to know. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He thrust out the enemy before you. When Israel was wandering from God, following their imaginations, worshiping false gods, losing strength, fainting, doubting, what does Isaiah tell the people of God? In Isaiah 40, 28, where we begin our service with this morning. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that we might know God. We might know our world as it is. Would you help us by faith live according to the reality that we're in? Help us trust Christ. Help us seek to be godly. Help us not fear. Trusting God is everlasting and eternal. Father, we love you, and we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.